Hello everybody, it is 7.30, there's basketball on the TV, there's light outside the window for once when I'm starting this, and it is just another day with an episode of Unqualified Analysis. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the show that's unqualified, both in resume and often in supporting evidence. Today we have got two new two-time national champions crowned in college basketball, Bruce Arians going out like a G, and the Dolphins continuing to find a way to dolphin it up every single time somehow it's, it's just incredible but before we get into the sports i gotta stop off of my work week real quick i've been uh kind of getting away from it here recently and i mean it's kind of kind of by design i don't lead a very uh interesting life but something happened this week that <laughs> i just i just had to share i mean let's just get right into it so on saturday out hustling around having a hot hot morning of deliveries and i'm talking not talking about the heat, I'm talking about that money, getting a whole lot of money on that morning, really productive, really just a great week overall, actually, best week on record I've had doing that delivery shit, but that's besides the point, anyways, I take this massive order from PetSmart, and you know, it was one of those orders where you can you can just walk in, grab everything, check out, and go in like 5-10 minutes, my absolute favorite, love going to PetSmart. I mean, I know where basically everything is in that store at this point. Usually they're just baby simple orders, unless I'm picking out live crickets, in which case, I mean, everyone's got their line. I'm not I'm not reaching in and getting live crickets. I'm sorry. It's just no, no amount of money, unless you're paying me like an obscene amount of money, is enough to get me in there. But only catch is, it's a bit of a drive off the beaten path, this, uh, this delivery, but... Pro tip for any of you fellow delivery app drivers out there, uh, if the dollar total is greater than the mileage, i.e. you got a $10 order, for example, uh, nine miles of driving on that order, then the distance really doesn't matter that much. That's good math. A one-to-one -one ratio is good math pretty much any any way you split it. Um, yeah, there, there's other stipulations on how I choose my orders, but that's just the basic one that if you just follow that, you'll probably end up making a good amount of money doing this. I digress, though. But by those standards, this order fell pretty much within desired compensation parameters. Very much so. Had zero problem with taking this uh, this drive out there. It was it was out out there in the uh, in the sticks, but the uh, the compensation was more than fair, my friend. So yeah, I get out there about a. 20 30 minute drive outside of town you know pretty pretty off the beaten path if i do say so myself uh in the middle of the country nestled right by a ridge of mountains that uh just make the place look like something straight out of a bob ross painting i mean if whenever i get to the point where i have enough money where i can just kind of move into the middle of nowhere and just never see people again i think that's definitely the type of property i'm looking for but uh, the house itself it's one of those palatial estates that someone from the city built when they uh, decided they were they were done dealing with people, like I just talked about. Uh, California plates on the uh, the cars in the, the driveway were a dead giveaway. Again, besides the point made, main point here is that the house was up on a hill um, and looked like it was a recent construction, so it had a long, long driveway. Probably something that's going to be paved eventually, but right now, it's a gravel driveway on the way up. Way up. That's why I say it's probably recent construction. So, either way, uh, to get up the main driveway, it's, you know right outside the house, you know, you got to go up this big old gravel run, gravel runway, whatever, I've done it a million times before, just going to make sure my, my little, uh, little, uh, fuck, Ford Fiesta, that's what it's called, Jesus, forgot what it was for a second, just, just make sure that the Fiesta has some traction, don't get too, uh, persnickety with the, uh, accelerator there, that's pretty much all you got to do, uh, but anyway, so, I'm making my way up the gravel driveway, then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I just see this bird 
to the right front of my car, uh, run straight at my bumper, wings outstretched in like the, the you what mate type of, type of pose, and he just running at me on the ground, takes flight and attacks the bumper of my car on the way by, flies by, you know, tries to strafe the front of my car. I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? I get to the top of the driveway naturally, as you can imagine, I'm a bit cautious getting out of the car because some crazy motherfucking bird just tried to peck the shit out of my tires. Who knows if he can come for my eyes next? I mean, I got the glasses. I got that natural protection in there. But, I mean, I got a soft face. I don't want to get no scars on this, man. I mean, I already have trouble with ladies as is. I mean, I got a fucking nasty-ass scar in there. I mean, it's over. It's over, man. Better better embrace my life of singlehood from there. So, you know, being, being real cautious getting out of the car, uh, thankfully... The bird didn't follow me to the house. So I think to myself, eh, maybe I just startled the bird and mistook its confusing flailing with an attack. Okay, you know, maybe maybe it's all a misunderstanding. You know, it didn't, I didn't actually get confirmation that it, it pecked my bumper because, I, you know, I, I listened to shit on very loud volumes. I think I was actually listening to music at that point. So not a snowball's chance in hell that I would actually hear it hit my bumper if it did hit my bumper. So maybe it just, I just startled it. It was sitting in the road. I, I pulled up out of nowhere. It's probably not used to cars coming by. I understand. So make the delivery. Everything goes smoothly there. I'm making my way back down the driveway. And this time I see the same bird sitting in the middle of the road, daring a motherfucker to try. So, you know, I keep driving thinking, hey, I guess I'm, I'm about to find out if it was actually attacking me or not. Right. So, and sure enough, as I get close, this bloodthirsty motherfucker got red, saw red in his vision, took off, took flight, and just strafed right in front of the hood of my car, basically telling me, bitch, you better not even think about coming back here. You better keep on driving, keep on going. Uh, yeah, old buddy did not follow me out on the road, though, so once I got off the, uh, off the driveway, it was back to getting that money right over again, but I'll tell you what, moral of the story, how about that shit, huh? <laughs> What the fuck? I ain't never seen some shit like that before, man. I mean, I've seen like I've seen geese be very territorial. I mean, if you got a if you got a goose uh, garden, it's it's eggs. Do not fuck with that thing. Geese will tear you limb from limb if they could. Well, they they can, but they will peck the shit out of you. They will definitely attack you if they're guarding some uh, some eggs or they're young. So don't don't fuck with geese. But outside of geese, I have not ever seen a bird do that before and this wasn't like some big bird either i mean it was a little bit bigger than usual but it was smaller than a crow i mean just some, some crazy shit you see in the in the uh the the country here i'll tell you what but uh, if you're going out in the country man just just don't run up on birds that are defending its turf i mean those little motherfuckers they're about that life man that's uh that's about all i can say about that but before we get out of the real life stuff i do have to stop off on a uh, one quick tangent here DK Metcalf came out with his diet. Let me just go read down the list here. One cup of coffee, one meal, and three bag, three to four bags of candy a day. DK Metcalf has definitely been copying my diet that got me to peak athletic specimen you see before you here today. That's right. You hear that? That's right. Only only peak athletes can do that. I mean, it's it's not the diet for everyone, but just top level athletes of our species, I understand. I mean, not everyone can be in peak physical condition like me and DK Metcalf. I understand some people are just just blessed. What can I say, right? I mean, not everyone, not everyone can eat like this and still just look as damn good as we do. I mean, I am every bit as jacked as DK Metcalf is. 
obviously. But that is all to say, it may not be rational at all. I know me and DK Metcalf, as much as I'm joking here, definitely have a different metabolism. That doesn't change the fact that this definitely just solidified this as a, uh, a valid uh, diet in my mind. So I'm going to keep doing exactly what I've been doing. One cup of coffee, one meal a day. Three to four bags of candy is actually a little bit more than what I generally do. So, hey, maybe I add, maybe I bump up that candy content a little bit. I mean, you know, maybe I have to scale it down. Actually, that that's a good point. He He's on a different income scale than me. I mean, even, I assume he's still on his rookie deal. I, I don't honestly know what, what DK Metcalf's contract's looking like, like nowadays. But either way, on a rookie deal, still making significantly more money than I am. Three to four bags of candy is definitely more in the budget than three to four bags of candy for me. That being said, really just telling on myself just how broke I am that uh, one to two more bags of candy is uh, gonna break the back, break the bank for me. So I digress in that front. Let's uh, let's get into the sports, shall we? I mean, that was fun. Birds attacking my car, making a whole lot of money over the week. Great week in general. Uh, maybe an even better week of sports though. We got two different champions crowned, two different two-time champions at that. Let's start off with the women's. You know, first and foremost, they they had the first championship game, so it's only right that I go first with them. Really, admittedly, haven't really paid a whole lot of attention to the uh, women's game because I find it's usually two to three teams that have a, a shot, massive talent gap there, than everyone else below them. I mean, that you can see that like played out in the regular season and the postseason. I mean, it's basically like two to three teams. It's like UConn. Um, Notre Dame and Stanford historically, where it's like, you know, those are the top three teams. And then if they play like the number seven team in the country, they're going to win like 20 to 30 points, something like that. I mean, it's just going to be the, the gap between number three and number five is just huge in women's college basketball in a way that it's it's not exactly in men's college basketball. Uh, for better or for worse there, that might just be my, my shallowness playing in. But hey, give credit where credit is due. South Carolina, they have achieved something brilliant over the past several years here, both over the weekend against this red-hot UConn team and really just over the last decade-plus since Dawn Staley has been in there. And, I mean, speak of the devil, just bring her up right now. Dawn Staley, she needs to be talked about in that same category as Gino Auriemma, uh, Tara Vanderveer, Kim Mulkey, just the great college basketball coaches on the women's side of all time. I mean, Don Staley's right up there already. She just barely turned 50, really young in, in coaching terms. And I mean, what she's done with this South Carolina program, I mean, it's it's nothing short of remarkable. In her first season, South Carolina was 10-18, finished 11th in the SEC, uh, a program that hadn't make, made the NCAA tournament since... Uh, 2002-2003 seasons, which was uh, six seasons prior at the time. And then after that first year, and then you had two more subsequent years to kind of build up the culture a little bit. That's kind of just how it works in, in college sports there. Staley went on to lead the Gamecocks to 10 straight NCAA tournaments, six regular season SEC titles, and six SEC tournament titles. Interestingly enough, those don't all line up with each other. I'm not going to go through it all right away, but just know that they won six regular season SEC titles and six SEC tournament titles independently of one another. But I digress. Eight straight Sweet 16 appearances, what what they're on right now at this point. Uh, four Final Fours over the last seven tournaments and two national titles over the last five tournaments. Dawn Staley 
has been able to take one of the worst programs in the SEC, undebatably. I mean, I would assume just a punching bag for those uh, Tennessee teams of the past. And she's taken them and turned them into what can only be described as a basketball superpower, which is something that you just don't see in the women's game. I mean, it's an accomplishment that it's, it's so remarkable because programs like Stanford, UConn, Notre Dame, they have, like I talked about before, completely dominated the competition in an emphatic way for years, like I just laid out for you. I mean, that's not even to mention, like, you, you take a top five team and you, you pin them against, say, like a, the number 17 team in the country, you're looking at maybe like a 40, 50 point blowout in, in the women's game. And for Don Staley to elevate the program from a 10 win team, essentially, to one of the top programs in the country, I mean, at the very least, top five consistent program in the country, probably closer to top three or top four with the performance over the past five years, my God. I mean, it's it's nothing short of remarkable. I said it before, and I mean, look out because Dawn Staley is young in in coaching years. She's got a whole lot of years ahead of her, and she's one of those those coaches that I feel like, man, if she was like, no, no matter who is playing, like men, women, what sport, if I'm playing for for Dawn Staley, that's a person I want to run through the wall for because I feel like she just she can relate to her players and the people she's coaching in a way where at once it's both genuine, but also she's looking to get the best out of you. So it's it's the best of both worlds there where she actually genu- genuinely cares, but she's pushing buttons to try to see what works, what gets you motivated at the end of the day. And that's what really all the great ones have. Looking forward to seeing what Dawn Staley does in the future here. But hey, shout out to Dawn Staley, that whole uh, South Carolina program. Got a whole lot more dominance ahead of them in the years to come. But moving right along to the men's championship here, we got Bill Self getting that elusive second title, the other uh, two-time national champion to be crowned this weekend. Uh, UNC started out in this game with the, um, I mean, they were blowing them out. They were up 15 at the half, but in the end, Kansas came back, made it a close, hard, hard contested game in the end down the stretch and uh, ended up coming back from down 15 at halftime to uh Make a make a statement and win this one. I mean, got to take a real quick moment before we get into the uh, the stroking of self in Kansas. I do want to take a moment to recognize just how fucking awesome Hubert Davis is. Yeah, Hubert Davis. Yeah, that that's definitely how his name is pronounced. Hubert Davis. Jeez, I mean, got to got to pronounce his name correctly. Jesus Christ, Caleb. Anyways, I mean, this guy's he's got an intense, fiery energy. Obviously, loves and believes in his guys. Uh, somehow never cusses, which is by far the most remarkable thing for me. I mean, you've heard time and again, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know, in my mind for a long time, I have kind of thought to myself, tried to tried to be disciplined in the first 10 minutes of the podcast all the time with my, my cuss words. If you've noticed, I don't think I've been successful even one time in preventing myself from cussing just in the first 10 minutes, let alone an entire hour and a half podcast. Hubert Davis is talking for hours and hours a day, coaching kids, not only coaching kids, but getting in their face, being fiery and somehow not cussing must be super religious. I don't know what other way you would not cuss for. I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure that cursing is necessarily a sin in, in religion, but I don't know. A lot of religions seem to lump them in there. 
either way, it's it's it boggles my mind, but I absolutely love the guy for doing it. Honestly, I mean, it's not not my tough my not my cup of tea, honestly. But I appreciate the hell out of the guy. And I mean, that sideline interview he had where he cuts off Tracy Wolfson mid question just goes on a minute long rant yelling in which he invoked the immortal words of the turtle man stating it's live action out there Tracy not quite that uh that action that the turtle man accent that the turtle man had but I mean just he wanted to yee yee so fucking bad at that point he was just Tracy I'm telling you what yee I'm telling you I'm sorry gotta put it away gotta put it away I'm sorry sorry but this is just just a gem of a human being I can't wait to see him in Chapel Hill for I don't know years decades to come I mean, certainly going to be there longer than Coach K. I mean, well, not not longer than his actual tenure, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Maybe you don't. I'm kind of rambling at this point. Either way, to go from Roy Williams to Hubert Davis, if there's one thing UNC knows how to do, it's at least they know how to hire likable characters at their head coach for uh, basketball. That's for and for football for that reason. I mean, Mac Mac Brown, one of the good guys, one of the great guys in all of college football. I'll tell you what. So yeah, that that UNC program. Really just the whole athletic program, just good vibes top to bottom, especially when Roy Williams was in there doing the players' homework for him. I mean, that was that was just good times, but who needs to talk about the cheating aspect? Anyways, getting on to the, uh, the stroking and sucking here, um, it's a fairly fitting way for Bill Self to uh, get his second title because, I mean, it was pretty much the same position he was in in his first title in 2008. Let's just look at him side by side here. I mean, first off, they were essentially the afterthought of both Final Fours. In 08, they had, uh, just going down the list here, they had the Derrick Rose Memphis team, who Kansas ended up beating in the finals. Uh, UCLA team that had Russell Westbrook, Kevin Love, and Darren Collison. Also, just a little throw in there, they had uh, Luke Mute who ended up playing, I don't know if he ended up playing double digits in the league, but he was a longtime NBA player, just a rotational guy. Still, had four legit NBA guys in there. And they had UNC when Tyler Hansborough, I don't know if he was just coming in or at the height of his powers, but that was, you know, UNC was popping when Psycho T was in the building, I'll tell you that much. But not to mention the Final Four matchup with UNC that uh, Kansas had was basically just about Roy Williams playing in Kansas again for the first time since leaving Kansas to take the UNC job. So really just all along the way in 08, an afterthought until Mario Chalmers comes into the championship, shocks Memphis, and they win it. This year, Final Four was essentially completely consumed by the uh, Duke-UNC matchup. There might as well not have even been a, a second Final Four matchup, especially when, you know, Villanova was was uh, short-staffed. And I know I said last week that I like Nova, but also you gotta you got to realize at this point, if I state that I like them on this podcast, it's essentially a death sentence. Like, literally, every time in the tournament... At every every juncture I send around that I really like this team, they have gone a, gone ahead and lost that same same weekend. Usually the round the round after I just said it. So yeah, I mean you had to had to see that that was coming that uh, Villanova was going to lose, but they were they were shorthanded. They they had a yeah I think Colin Gillespie was there. I don't know if he was actually no he was he was injured. So yeah, Villanova really didn't didn't have a shot there. Um, yeah, everyone just kind of assumed Kansas was gonna was gonna win that just right off the bat. So everyone just focused on look Duke UNC, uh, the the final matchup in Coach K's career. What was gonna happen there? Obviously UNC pissed in Coach K's Cheerios one last time. Just a hilarious setup there. Gotta love it. 
I mean, gotta love a, a salty Coach K. Ugh, watching him walk off the court, holding his wife's hand, all sad. Oh, brings a happy tear to my eye. Let me tell you what. Call me a hater, but I'll tell you what. Literally everyone except Duke fans hate Duke, so I'm right there with everyone else in the nation. But in addition to that, both of the teams in 08 and in 2022 were led by their experience, though I would say that's more of a hallmark of self's preferred method of uh, structuring a team than it is of, like, you know, what, what the success looks like there, or just kind of coincidental. I don't, I don't think that that aspect is, is as coincidental as the uh, them being an afterthought this time, you know? So well, let's just look at it, though. Uh, in 08, three of the top four scorers and three of the top four rebounders in the team were juniors and seniors, with Darrell Arthur being the uh, token monster sophomore. I think he scored like 16 a game or something that year. I think he didn't didn't have a very long NBA career, but yeah, he, he, he did end up getting drafted. It's a name that I, I remember off the top of my head. So I know he played at some point in the NBA. This season's team, three of the top four scorers and three of the top four rebounders were juniors and seniors. Uh, Jalen Wilson was the token sophomore this time around. Few more rebounds with seven rebounds a game, but uh, eleven points per game—a little bit, little bit less than Darrell Arthur there. Still, though, this twenty-two team was actually a little bit more experienced on average than that 08 team. I think the 08 team—well, I don't think it's right here in front of me. <laughs> it's, I'm reading off a document here. Uh, the average experience for the 08 team was uh, two years, so average average age was uh, flat sophomore there. This year is two point four years of experience, so a full almost uh half a year more of experience there um i guess the uh the overlooked underdog with an experienced squad seems to be where uh self thrives uh uh that makes a lot of sense why he only has two national titles i guess because kansas isn't exactly a uh, under the radar type of program but uh, hey steering away from the guy's shortcomings because come on the guy would just won a national title i can give him a break for this this is a win that really cements bill self's already kind of ironclad legacy uh, as one of the top head coaches of this era. So hey, congrats to Self, congrats to Ojai Abaji, can't say congrats today, I guess, uh, who's about to get fucking paid, by the way. That guy, talk about a guy who, who's elevated himself this season. That guy is a for sure lottery pick. Uh, congrats to the sea of white people in Kansas who live vicariously through this basketball team in lieu of reminiscing on their lack of athletic prowess. And of course... In the immortal words of Mark Emmert, congratulations to the Kansas City Jayhawks. Also, just saw it run across the uh, bottom line here on ESPN, congrats to Oscar Shibway on winning the AP Player of the Year and Wooden Award this year. I mean, didn't help you get out of the first round, but, uh, you know, can't win them all, can you? You can only win the individual awards when you play for Kentucky. You'll probably have a pretty good NBA career throw. Anyways, after that dumb shit I just did there, uh, moving on to the uh, bread and butter of this podcast, let's get into the NFL headlines, shall we? Starting off, we have got probably the most interesting story in the league this week. Uh, so many questions surrounding this move. Bruce Arians uh, retiring fairly suddenly after putting out a lot of vibes that he was really excited for the upcoming season. Uh, Todd Bowles will take his place as the the new head coach there. Um, I a lot of questions, like I said, surrounding this one. Why did he decide to retire after he initially sounded really enthusiastic about the upcoming season? On top of that, why did he choose to retire now, like two months after the season instead of like right after the season? I mean, you'd think, you know, 
you, especially with them losing, I guess, what was it? The, the divisional round they ended up losing this year or was it the first round? I can't remember. Either way, point of the story is they had, a, he had a lot of time to, to sit and marinate on a decision on whether he wanted to retire. So, I mean, it was a little bit strange, this timing. And to what extent was Tom Brady involved in this decision? That last one is what the internet is really fixated on here <laughs> about this decision. I mean, no one thinks this is just a garden variety retirement here. Uh, chances are we'll never get a clear answer as to what exactly happened. But the way I see it, based on the information at hand, there's really only a couple possibilities that that could be for what's what's going on here. None of which are just about Arians being just simply being ready to retire. Like, oh man, just woke up this morning, ready to retire. Didn't feel like it yesterday, but man, I'll tell you what, the year snuck up on me fast in the last last day or so. I'll tell you what, I'm I'm just ready to go. The one thing we can say for certain in this situation is that did not happen. Someone did a great deal of calculation to ensure a certain outcome. The real question here is which side was the one pulling the strings. So we've got a couple different scenarios in my mind. There's two main ones, I think, that are the main explanation for, for why this move happened when it did. Scenario one, I, I like to call it the vengeful god, Tom Brady. Uh, this is the scenario that the internet really has gravitated towards because people love a good petty story. And I'll tell you what, this, this falls under that category. Um, it's no secret that Tom Brady and Bruce Arians have had a good amount of tension in the past. I mean, not enough to really uh, boil over into anything that was detrimental to the team. Um, but it was enough to, to bleed over into media comments by Arians, which Brady obviously never appreciated there were a lot of rumblings a lot of a lot of anonymous reports which you know take those with a grain of salt obviously but there if there was enough of them out there to make me think there was something there that Brady did not appreciate though those comments being made in the media uh Brady came down to Tampa with an expectation I think that things would be different than the Patriot way uh which was you know being constantly berated in in meetings and practice and while I don't think Arians ever really came close to that type of authoritarian ty- ugh, that type of authoritarian style, very easy for me to enunciate today, uh, that Belichick had, that was his calling card basically. But there's certainly reports that Arians treated Brady just like everyone else. Which is to say, when Tom fucks up, Arians likely dog cusses the shit out of him from time to time because that's just what Bruce Arians does. He's a lot like me even to a greater extent, I would say, in that he does not know how to put together a, a string of three to four sentences without put, saying some sort of cuss word in there. I mean, it's it's bound to just fucking come out eventually, like like just right there. I mean, maybe just because I'm talking about it now, but I just, yeah, I, I just, just want just to cuss so bad, so fucking bad, dude, I'll tell you what. But anyways, as someone who is unequivocally the greatest player of all time, a guy who's 20 years prior to joining the Bucks included six Super Bowl titles, nine AFC championships. I can imagine Brady expects a certain level of leeway that your average 30th man on the roster simply just would not. I mean, if he did, he would not have a job either. And I mean, you, you, what am I what am I trying to say here? You, you, you expect different things based on your level of success at the end of the day. And in that sense, I could see how Tom Brady might grow tired of receiving what he perceived as treatment not befitting his place 
in the pantheon of the NFL because he's right there. I mean, obviously on the Mount Rushmore, he's one of one right there at the top, pretty much undisputed at this point for several years now, greatest player of all time. You can throw Jerry Rice in there. I think as a position player, it's hard to dispute that Jerry Rice is probably the greatest position player of all time, but man, Tom Brady, definitely the greatest overall player of all time. I mean, greatest player of all time has to be a QB. I don't, I don't make the rules. I just follow them. The QB controls basically the entire game. So yeah, Brady, best player of all time, obviously. And you know, so the prevailing prevailing theory, getting back on on topic here, I kind of kind of derailed there, got into my my quick quick uh, rambling there. Still doing it right now. In fact, just just taking the quickness off it to a to a certain extent. Uh, the prevailing theory for Twitter and many of the media pundits out there was that uh, pushing Arians into retirement was a precondition for Brady's return to the team. So let me paint a picture for you here. Rumblings of Brady's return picked up steam. When the world saw Ronaldo ask, let me act this out again for you. Oh, you're done, right? And uh, Brady responded with a resounding, I don't know, man, at the Manchester United match. This video made even more was made even more significant by the fact that the owners of Man U, the Glazers, are also the owners of, you guessed it, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This makes the most likely theory that fits into the vengeful God scenario, as I like to call it. Now, Brady had a meeting with the Glazers while at the Man U match. The Glazers asked Brady, what, what's it going to take uh, to bring you out of retirement, all right? What, what's it going to take, Brady? We, we want you back. We aren't ready to move forward with Kyle Trask. We're, we're, fucking, we're, we're, we're fucking scared right now. What, what, what can we do to bring you back here? And Brady more or less responds that... Arians has got to go, otherwise he's not coming back. And Glazers essentially said, like, shit, that's all? Shit, all right, we can do that. Just just do this here. All right, well, let's do it. Did we get Tom Brady back? Yeah, sure. Sorry, Bruce, you're going into retirement. We can either we can either fire you or you can retire. It's your choice, buddy. Uh, why was Bruce Arians pushed out a whole two weeks after uh, Brady announced his return, you might ask? Uh, good question, good question. Well, this way, it's harder for people in the media and beyond to draw a straight line from Brady's return to Arian's departure. You see, if you know they were a day or two apart, um, if they happened in the same week even, it doesn't take a genius in the art of subterfuge to sniff out that something is fishy here. The, these two are obviously connected. I mean, right now, a lot of people are connecting the dots, but you give it a two-week cushion like they did... All parties have a certain degree, maybe it's even a three-week cushion, but all, all parties have a certain degree of plausible deniability that the uh, the two the two events can feasibly pass as independent of one another. So, you know, eh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's obviously very, very interesting timing there. That's, that's the argument for scenario one. In this scenario, Brady is the one wielding his leverage to push out... Uh, push out a coach he doesn't get along with, essentially. So he would be the ones pulling the strings in this scenario. Scenario two, though, Bruce Arians is a ride or die, my guys. And the counter theory for Brady being a vengeful god, as I've said, is that Bruce Arians intentionally kicked the can on his retirement down the road to benefit his guys. Let me, let me, let me explain here quick. To understand this perspective, you need to understand the relationship that Arians has with Todd Bowles. And, uh, yeah, Todd Bowles 
and Bruce Arians' relationship started 40 years ago when Bowles played safety for the University of Temple when Arians was the uh, the coach there. I mean, 40 years ago. That's that's a long, long time to know someone. I, I assume he really liked him as a player, kept that relationship all throughout his, his uh, playing career. I'm not, Actually, I don't know if Todd Bowles played in the NFL or not, but uh, either way, I digress in that point. From there... Their professional relationship really kicked off when Arians first hired Bowles as his D.C. with the Cardinals. Uh, obviously, does a great job with the Cardinals. Ends up getting hired as the Jets head coach for a short stint there. Before really, I mean, he wasn't the best head coach in the world, but he, he did a good enough job to where they did kind of do him dirty. And I believe they brought in Adam Gase after that, so really just rubbing salt in the wound there. But landed on his feet, Arians hired him back again as the DC when he was with the the Bucks after he you know after Bowles got got fired by the Jets you know the terrible situation there for him just talked about it either way. Uh, it's safe to say that Todd Bowles is one of Bruce Arians' greatest friends in the coaching world, and I would guess one of his most prized mentees in the game. A guy that he's really really molded at this point, like I said, known for forty years, one of his oldest friends which I'm sure made it all the more gut-wrenching to just watch him receive again and again scant passing interest for head coaching jobs. And given that, I'm sure Arians really believed Bowles deserved a second shot here. So that brings me to the present. Bruce Arians knows his days of coaching are numbered, but he knows that if he does it the right way, he can help his guy get that second opportunity that he's uh, looking to get. So... In this scenario, we would assume that Arian strategically waited for all of the following to happen. Uh, the best outside co head coaching candidates were all hired by other teams. The bulk of free agency of the free agency shuffle was through, and the combined, the, oh sorry, the combine is over and the draft is just mere weeks away. This this whole scenario, after he's waited for all of that to transpire, basically leaves the front office with absolutely no time and no external options that they could be that could be vetted quickly enough to replace Arians without messing completely fucking up the Bucks draft uh, preparation. I mean, at this point, if they if they went through a uh, a whole head coaching search, they would some things would fall through the crack in the draft. It, it would be an absolute disaster if they if they went through it with an outside hire from this point. So as a result, the Bucks essentially had no other choice but to hire Todd Bowles and keep the incumbent coaching staff uh, in place, if for no other reason than to keep the continuity there, keep the team running, uh, keep the machine moving, if 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 you will. Uh, in that way, the delaying strategy doesn't just benefit Bowles, also ensures that guys like Byron Leftwich, who who got left out in the cold this his uh, head coaching uh, hiring cycle, uh, kind of got a, a raw deal there with the Jags, really just made his feelings known, and the Jags were like, ooh, <laughs> didn't think you'd be honest with us. Bye-bye. Uh, but yeah, he'll be right back at the top of the, the list of hiring next year. Easy for me to say. Right back at the top of the list for hiring style next year. I mean, OCs for great QBs are the first ones to get snatched up for uh, head coaching opportunities, unless you're, you're Eric B. Enemy, basically. So Byron Leftwich getting the keys to the, to the, to the car, if you will, really coordinating the, coordinating the entire offense on his own, for I believe the first time in his coaching career, he's going to get a, a real opportunity to uh, to put his play calling abilities on front street, basically, and really just just get his get his name out there for a real real serious head coaching uh, consideration. He was very seriously considered this offseason. 
But I assume this puts him in an even better spot to be considered next offseason. But the bottom line here is our overarching question of, you know, for our overarching question of who's pulling the strings, if this scenario is the truth, then Bruce Arians has been the one wheeling his leverage to benefit his good buddy Todd Bowles. So which side is pulling the strings? Was Brady tired of Bruce Arians shit? Or was Bruce Arians just beating the dog shit out of the Bucks in a game of 3D chess here? Personally, I like to think it's the latter. Uh, Arians intentionally delaying his retirement to force a team into hiring his boy would be unquestionably right up there with Al Davis essentially stealing a team out from under an, own, an owner to, to get the team to where he, well, to own his team. Uh, right up there is one of the biggest G moves in league history. I'd say right on the route, right on the Mount Rushmore of G moves because he, he absolutely cocked the Bucks in this this whole scenario. And, you know, that that's what I hope the reality is. I'm In my mind, that's my truth. Bruce Arians is just a G among Gs going out like a G, moving into the front office. I uh, hope he has a long, you know, successful career there. The worst thing you can do is... I mean, maybe it's a controversial opinion, but I think the worst thing you can stop doing, the worst thing you can do when you get older is stop working, in my opinion. So, hey, good for him for sticking around, getting a less stressful job at that, but still sticking around the football team. Best for all parties involved here. I mean, just uh, looking forward to seeing how this works for everyone. Moving right down the list, though, we have got... Dolphins, given a five-year extension to cornerback Xavier Howard, the contract details are as followed. Five years, $90 million, $36.3 million, fully guaranteed. Guarantees are actually pretty uh, pretty low. They're actually lower in his last contract extension. Um, that's because there's an out after the first two seasons. Um, on the surface, this looks like a massive extension, but this is definitely shades of a different era of contract negotiations. It's not like today's era where you're looking at more guaranteed money. Uh, well under half of the deal is guaranteed, which for an undebatable top five corner in the league, I, it's a, it's a little bit head scratching from my perspective. Um, the, the team can conceivably kick him off the roster, kick him to the curb. I mean, before even paying out the majority of the contract to him, so, I don't know. This is, it's a head-scratching deal from, from the agent's perspective. Maybe there's something I'm missing here that's a, a big benefit from Howard's perspective. But from where I stand, it feels like Howard and his representation got raked over the coals in this negotiation. I mean, $90 million sounds great, but having well under half it, I mean, $36 million of $90 million is, it's nothing. I mean, it's, it's basically pennies. I mean, I know Jalen Ramsey's in a bit of a different economic situation, but I think the guy, that guy got like $70 million guaranteed. J.C. Jackson just uh, getting signed with um, with the Chargers. He just commanded over, well, not over, he commanded $40 million guaranteed, well, basically over the next two years, essentially. Um, he had $7.5 million lower, lower in uh, total nominal value, too. I think he, I think Howard could have definitely commanded $50 million or more guaranteed if his agent would have stuck to his guns. I mean, I guess the problem is that um, I, I guess he was right in the middle of a, a long-term deal anyway, so you didn't have a, a great negotiating stance in the first place. But 
you gotta you gotta draw a hard line in the sand at a certain point if you're Howard's agent. Bottom line here, a top level corner signing a deal structured like this is bad for everyone at the position, not just Howard. And I'm assuming some of this uh, this structure is as a result of what Howard was asking for, but I guess I would just like to know, just like to have a little bit more clarity as to what exactly, to what extent that played a role here, because this this doesn't feel like a contract that's befitting of one of the best corners in the league. And I'll uh, I'll just leave it at that. That's that's about about all I can really say on on the issue there. Moving right down the list, we are zooming right through this podcast, getting about halfway through it. We have got Bobby Wagner officially signing with the Rams. He was been he's been uh it's been rumored to be signing with the Rams for for weeks now. Really since I think the opening of free agency, they've just been going back and forth in negotiations, I assume. Contract, pretty classic Rams confusing structure. I mean, on the surface, five years, fifty million dollars. Um, I guess it can go up to sixty two or something. Um, according to Rappaport, though, functionally it's a two year seventeen and a half million dollar deal with incentives to get it up to twenty three and a half million. Um, really, if you get right down to it, I believe it's more of like a one-year, $10 million deal. Uh, that's all to say, don't ask me how all this works. The Rams were on their bullshit structure in this one out, and Bobby Wagner was just all game for it, I guess. He's another one of those guys who's uh, who's representing himself. We'll talk about another one of the guys, those guys a little bit later in the show. A bit more of an interesting case, if you ask me. But just getting back to the uh, the topic at hand here... Separate from the contract stuff, though, separate from all the, the confusing aspects there, this is a huge get for the Rams from a football standpoint. I mean, their defense, they've got two main holes that they've got in their defense. Right now, it's linebacker and safety. And they just filled one of those with one of the greatest linebackers of all time. I mean, they lost Troy Reader in free agency, but when you bring in a guy that was the play caller and the brain of one of the most legendary defenses of all time, Legion of Boom. I mean, the guy just instantly will inject order into this unit from that position. I can promise you that. And you'll get a lot less boom or bust potential with Bobby Wagner at the helm. I mean, inside linebackers, always going to, um, not always, but usually like 90% of the time are uh, calling out the defense to uh, to start the playoff. And uh, Wagner's ability in this front is absolutely huge. Oh, eh, absolutely elite, just stumbling all over my fucking words today. What else is new? Um, yeah, he's a guy that not only is his play calling elite, he can switch on the fly based on what the, the offense is showing him. An absolute weapon for a defense to have. You want a guy who can just be in the, the brain for everyone out there to just let everyone else just go do their thing and play freely. And, I mean, he was a captain, like I said, on one of the greatest defenses of all time. Not only that, though, in a system, Dan Quinn's system, especially back in the day, I'm not exactly sure how it is now. I think he's got a, a little bit less of this. But back then, when you know you got Cam Chancellor, Earl Thomas, uh, Richard Sherman, Brandon Browner, uh, Bobby Wagner, K.J. Wright, it just goes on and on and on, on down the list there. It was a system that emphasized a lot of player autonomy because the players in that system were just so goddamn nasty but when you when you emphasize that much player autonomy I mean on one hand you can leave your players out to dry if they're not necessarily mentally up to the task but if they are up to the task like Bobby Wagner was frankly 
you can really elevate your your mental prowess in the game simply by by practicing that level of autonomy. I mean, autonomy, I mean, you're, you're talking to a guy who basically works DoorDash because I like autonomy so much. Like, autonomy allows you to execute so much quicker than having someone above you, than, you know, having having to check in and do something else with, with someone else. I'm not even sure what I'm saying at this point. I'm just putting words together. But the bottom line here is, when you've got that autonomy, you inherently gain a better understanding of the game, and that's exactly what Wagner brings to the table here. Awesome get, and he may not be quite at the height of his athletic powers like he used to be, but like I've been harping on over and over again, still one of the elite linebackers in this game, more than capable of keeping up with guys at this stage of his career. Jesus Christ, just burping straight through straight through the analysis there. But again, what else is new? I basically just mainline Coca-Cola. Uh, no free ads, but there you go, Coke. I mean, everyone fucking knows Coke anyways. No, no one's buying Coke because I'm telling them to buy it. I digress on that front. Either way, I am all sorts of scatterbrained today. Um, yeah, like I said, Wagner, one of the, still one of the elite linebackers in the league, capable of keeping up with guys in coverage, uh, running guys down uh, sideline to sideline in, in the run game, uh, stopping guys in the run game as well. Still probably can get a, a few more elite years out of, out of Bobby Wagner. So this is a, a great pickup for him. Barring any unforeseen health setbacks, though, which... Honestly, we gotta we gotta be honest here. It's it's always a possibility with older players in physical positions like linebackers. Uh, I would say though, this move elevates the Rams' entire defense overnight. Immediately, you got now a star at all three levels. You don't you don't have one at safety, but you know when you got a, a Jalen Ramsey, it allows a, a subpar safety to get away with a few more mistakes that he might make mentally in coverage. So, either way. The defense is probably going to be right there at the top next year. I mean, with Donald up front, Wagner in the linebacking core, Ramsey at corner, the ceiling is the roof for these guys. Truly, the ceiling is the roof. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. I just watched Giannis assault Benny the Bull. What a what a travesty. What a travesty. That's just... So call the cops. Call the cops. I just watched, I just watched Giannis assault a man. He might get deported for not... Yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave that there. You know, it's fortuitous that my tongue slipped up there. All right. Anyways, moving right down the list, we have got the Dolphins trading wide receiver to Don- <laughs> wide receiver Devonte Parker. Jesus Christ, my words today. Uh, to the Patriots, Pats get Parker in a fifth in this year's draft. Uh, the Dolphins get a third in the 2023 draft. Interesting to note here. Devontae Parker specifically requested to be traded to the Pats, and uh, the Dolphins made it happen. I mean, hey, that's really pro-player move of them. Good good for them to do that. Uh, I've just got to say, either the Dolphins are the dumbest franchise on the planet, or they really don't think that much of Parker as a player, because otherwise, why the hell do you trade him within the division? I don't care what the compensation is. Like, No matter what the case... I understand adding Tyreek Hill uh, and Cedric Wilson essentially pushes Parker out of the offense. You know, you already got Waddle incumbent there, probably going to end up being the the number two receiver behind Hill this year. Um, Parker's not a fourth receiver, so I understand trading him was essentially an inevitability. But I don't care what the guy wants. You don't trade 
a solid player that's still in the prime of his career, albeit in the late late stage of the prime of his career, kind of getting more injury prone as of late. I mean, always kind of been that way, but still a solid player that could definitely contribute for a team in the division. And you especially cannot trade him to the fucking Patriots. What are you doing? How can you ever make a deal with Bill Belichick and not come away feeling like you just sold your soul to the devil somehow? Like it's Bill Belichick always wins. He always wins these things. Okay. I, this may be a controversial take. I don't think it really is. If you go back and look at the track record, Bill Belichick's not a great drafter, plain and simple. But when it comes to the trade market, um, I'm really not great at bringing in free agents either. He's not necessarily the the recruiting type necessarily. He benefited a lot from having Tom Brady in the building back in the day. But one thing he can do is he can get. He, he's a he's a, a stone cold mercantilist when it comes to winning trades he will never lose I don't think Bill Pel- nah, I don't think Bill Belichick has ever lost a trade in his entire life even when he traded Chandler Jones he still ended up getting enough value from that to where yeah sure he was wrong that Chandler Chandler Jones was past his prime but either way they didn't have to pay Chandler Jones and they ended up getting some solid draft picks out of it I do believe if I'm not mistaken so I don't know man to, to trade not only within the division, but to that man, you've got to, you just played yourself. That's a very Chris Greer move, just a head-scratching decision from the Dolphins' front office. But, hey, from the Patriots' perspective, this is a move that immediately helps the offense. You think about it, Parker can step in right away and most likely play the one in this offset offense. Um, Myers and Bourne, excellent players. I, I've talked about it many times in this podcast, specifically Bourne. I think Myers is definitely definitely the more skilled, uh, more definitely better route runner of the two between you know, Myers and Bourne there. But Bourne has, I mean, he's got frame and he's got the athleticism to really turn himself into a, a great, great pass catcher. But right now, he's just raw athleticism right now. Uh, Devontae Parker can go up and get a ball when you need him to in ways that Myers and Bourne simply can't. Kendrick Bourne can go up and make some some fantastic plays, but in the clutch situation, when you basically know the ball is coming to him, he it's a little bit different throwing to Kendrick Bourne than it is to throwing uh, throwing it up to Devontae Parker. I mean, again, we'll have to wait and see exactly how this this affects the Pats. We'll have to wait and see if if he if he stays healthy. That's been the big bugaboo for uh for Parker basically his entire NFL career is he's it's been hard for him to to stay on the field. If he can though, I mean that's instantly instantly fills a hole that the uh, the Patriots needed on offense at wide receiver. Talked with uh, talked with Zach before about um, Patriots possibly picking up wide receiver in this in this draft. I still think they do, but I, I do think that this, this affects their draft strategy. I look for them to, um, you've you've heard the, the defensive staff in particular allude to it many times, particularly Gerard Mayo, who is, uh, I don't know if he's, he's not, he's not technically the defensive coordinator. I think he's like senior defensive assistant or something like that. He's essentially the, the defensive coordinator, though. I do believe um, young Belichick has a, has a significant role in there as well. But Gerard Mayo pulls most of the strings there, from what I understand. He said, I believe on multiple occasions at this point, uh, especially after playing up against uh, the Bills, that they're trying to get younger and faster on defense. So I would assume probably 
first two or three rounds to be dedicated almost solely to the uh, the defensive side of the ball. Maybe maybe you get in there uh, fourth, late third round. You get a you get a wide receiver. The, the The good thing about this draft is it's such a deep draft that you can get really good value, really productive players. Really mid rounds of the draft. I mean, you look at a guy like take uh, KJ Osborne with the Vikings. I know I like to talk about him really mostly more than just about any other show I would I would imagine but he's a really solid third receiver Vikings got him in the fifth round uh two years ago and he you know just last year ended up getting 700 yards really making some some key contributions so you can get some some solid value in uh in mid rounds I think that's kind of kind of what the Patriots are going to end up doing I'll be interested to see exactly what they they end up doing but again Dolphins, what are you doing? Just just finding a way to, to dolphin it up once again here. But again, what are we doing? We're moving right down the list, like I just said before. The Vikings re-signing Patrick Peterson on a one-year, max $5 million value. It's a $4 million base salary, $3.5 million fully guaranteed. I guess that other half million becomes a locked-in guaranteed at some point this summer. I don't know. Probably like a June 1 type of thing, if I had to guess. Either way, that's beside the point. I know it's just a one-year signing of a guy that's uh, admittedly in the twilight of his career, but I really can't understate just how big this is for the Vikings secondary. I mean, the second corner right now is Cam Dantzler. And I mean, hey, Hale State, love the guy. Really one of one of my, my favorite players to watch at, at Mississippi State because I knew we had a shutdown corner when he was, he was out there. I mean, he... He was one of the only players who could go into, I mean, he still would get cooked every now and again because it is Bama, but he would go into into Bama and hold his own. So, I mean, love the guy, love Cam Dantzler, but he's really the only player of note in that secondary on the outside in particular. So signing Peterson doesn't necessarily solve all of the problems entirely, um, but it keeps the secondary from being an abject detriment to the team, which is really what it was last year. And I mean, I have serious questions about whether Peterson can uh, stay on the field consistently at this point in his career, but hell, if he can stay healthy, which again, big if, he's still great enough to really help a team. That being said, can't stress it enough, persistent hamstring injuries, injuries giant red flag for a cornerback. In a, in a position that more than any other position in the NFL has to be the greatest, most explosive athletes on the entire field. Uh, hamstring injuries, big old no-go. I would expect to, I know Peterson's been reluctant to move to safety in the past, and we do have Harrison Smith back there, but I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we move uh, we move Patrick Peterson to, to safety or something like that. Maybe play him more in a nickel position. Just keep him more in the in the middle of the field to where he's not being exposed in the outside where he might get another fucking hamstring pull at the end of the day, you know? So, where was I even going with this? Anyways, bot- bottom line here, love the signing. I think if he can stay healthy, it's going to be a, a really, really key um, key piece for our defense. Uh, that, that whole side of the ball is a work in progress, transitioning from a... 4-3 to a 3-4 here. I mean, we're, you know, trying to move Daniel Hunter to an outside linebacker and trying to find an opposite linebacker on the other side of him there. So there's there's a lot going on on that side of the ball. Having a veteran guy in the uh, the secondary, in addition to already having Barr and Kendricks in the middle, couldn't, couldn't hurt. But like I've said before, if nothing else, 
the boys are going to play a damn entertaining brand of football next year. I've, I have no illusions of it. They're going to give up a lot of points, and they're going to score a lot of points to boot. So mark my words and get it on it early before the sports books cash on. The Vikings are going to be an over-machine next year on the, uh, the over-under total points here. Just mark my words. Uh, happy gambling, friends. Call 1-800-GAMBLER if you got a gambling problem, you sexy fucking bitch. Uh, anyways, moving right down the list to the next move in this offseason. Taysom Hill uh, expected to focus more on the tight end role going forward for the Saints. So, Dennis Allen last week, uh, when asked about it in media availability, I don't know if it was at the owners' meetings or where it was. I assume it was at the owners' meetings because that's where everyone else was uh, was talking last week. Um uh, Made mention that uh, Taysom Hill will be moving away from his QB role and focusing more on the uh, tight end H-back role that he's been, you know, basically just the uh, the gadget do-everything player for the uh, for the Saints over the past several seasons since he came in there. Uh, it's a move that I think most people kind of saw coming, especially with, you know, Jameis Winston got re-signed for, I mean, low-level starter money. That's kind of kind of what you, you expect Jameis Winston to be signed for at the end of the day. Um and not to mention Taysom Hill's blood brother slash low key lover, uh, Sean Payton, uh, stepped down. Uh, the writing was pretty much on the wall. Not to mention his contract that he just signed this offseason. I mean, it's it's nice position player money, but not what you pay a guy that you plan on uh, playing at QB for you. It was $10 million average annual value. I believe. Um, Believe Jameis Winston ended up getting two years, twenty-eight million, so fourteen million dollar annual value. Clear indication that uh, they're not looking for him to to play the quarterback role necessarily on offense. But that's not to say that his role isn't going to be a crucial one. I think the lack of ambiguity with the uh, what position Taysom Hill is playing on a given week will end up actually helping the overall chemistry of the offense. Uh, it's hard to build up continuity when you're not sure if Taysom Hill is serving as the backup QB or a gadget player in this time. And when you're used to Taysom Hill being a gadget player who creates matchup problems for defenses basically every game because you can use him in so many spots, it's damn hard to reshape an offense when Peyton is forced to abruptly switch him to QB. I mean, when you're used to having matchup problems and at the very least having a safety blanket to where you know this guy, based on the design here, is going to be open most times. Not having that in there, it's it's a fairly immediate impact on the offense. And now, Hill has absolute clarity as to what his job is in the offense. And honestly, like I said before, that role is an absolutely crucial one for what the Saints are trying to do with their personnel this year. I mean, like you see, focusing on the defense, they don't have a lot of talent there on the offensive side. Hill can play tight end, slot, running back, special teams, and of course he can play that gadget QB. But like we've said, I mean, outside of outside of Wildcat looks, looks maybe one or two plays a game just to kind of keep the defense honest. You're probably not going to be seeing a whole lot of QB. But the point is, he can attack you in so many different ways. It's a wide skill set that creates all sorts of problems for opposing defenses. Um, just think of, I mean, I've say like. Debo Samuel is more of a, um, a souped-up version of what Taysom Hill is at his best, I would say. So, you know, Taysom Hill, really the godfather of that uh, that position, can do a whole lot of things for you. And now, instead of worrying about the possibility of extended QB reps at some point, 
the team can just use him as an absolute skeleton key for unlocking holes in opposing defenses. The question Pete Carmichael and his staff have to ask themselves on a given week of game planning is simply, where is the weak point on the opposing defense? From there, you just adjust Hill's package in that, in that game according to, to whatever weakness you want to press. So if the linebackers are weak for a particular team, uh, they don't they don't cover particularly well, or they're just they're just bums in general. Sorry, I mean no one in the NFL is necessarily a bum, but you know what I mean. You know what I'm trying to say. Uh, in that case, Hill can play more tight end reps, get get more uh, running back looks as well, exploit those matchups, get matched up on on uh, linebackers to uh to exploit that weakness. If the opposing secondary isn't particularly deep, uh, Hill can play in the slot, get more looks there, expose the uh the nickel corner there, get some. Get some easy completions for uh, for short yardage there. And hey, if the opposing team plays fast but but lacks discipline, you can use them as a decoy on jet motion. I mean, fake it to him on sweeps, use a whole lot of misdirection like that. I think having Hill solely devoted to the task of attacking the opposing team's greatest weaknesses will be an absolute game changer for the offense this upcoming season for the uh, for the Saints. I'm excited to see what they what they do with him. Um, interested to see how the offense looks without Sean Payton there. Uh, perhaps the most important of all, though, like I said, uh, alluded to it before, but outside of Mike Thomas and Alvin Kamara, uh, there's a massive, massive talent deficit uh, to other potential uh, competitive squads in the NFC in particular, really overall, definitely the AFC, that's for sure. Um, the versatility of Taysom Hill fills in a lot of those those cracks that would be more apparent in his absence. And I mean, look no further for evidence in that in that case than the Saints offense just last season. I mean, when when Hill was the QB, the offense scored just 20.8 points per game. When all other QBs excluding the Ian Book game because, you know, you can't you can't hold that against. I mean, there was just <laughs> there was there was a lot going on with with COVID at that point where uh, Ian I mean, Ian Book basically made the NFL say we, we can't do this anymore. We we gotta we, we we gotta change some things. We can't let Ian Book keep we, we can't let Ian Book be starting games anymore. But anyways, outside of him, all other QBs led the uh, offense to I mean, still not great in the grand scheme of things, but still four point three points better, twenty five point one points per game. Um, a noticeable, clear difference when Taysom Hill is the QB. It's just a fact. The offense stagnates when Taysom Hill is boxed into that QB role, uh, not playing his his gadget role where he can he can exploit a defense. So I'm really intrigued to see uh, how this affects the offense. Really curious to find out what the offense looks like without Sean Payton calling the plays in general. But I will say whatever the product ends up being, Taysom Hill is going to make that final product that much better no matter what, I can guarantee you that much right now. Moving right down the list, the Ravens extending John Harbaugh through 2025. Eh, so it's, it's for Steve Bishotti here. Good and bad news. First off, we'll start with the good news. Like I just said, greatest coach in franchise history. Locked up for three more seasons. Probably even more, for being honest. Just the three seasons is just a placeholder. They'll, they'll probably get another deal done at some point in there. But I digress. Bad news is Lamar Jackson has yet to agree to an extension. Ugh. 
an extension, Jesus Christ, words today, and the price of that extension just keeps rising. And that's pretty clearly what the strategy is for Lamar here. Sticking to that that story here because, hey, congrats to, to John Harbaugh. Great coach, yada, yada, yada. That's not really a very interesting story. The dynamics between Lamar Jackson and the Ravens here, negotiating-wise, are endlessly fascinating to me. Uh, slowly but surely, this has morphed from a minor annoyance into a full-on financial problem for the Ravens here. I mean, like I said, the price for Lamar Jackson's extension just keeps going up. And at first, sitting on the side watching Lamar from afar, I questioned his strategy for negotiating a deal with the Ravens. He's a frequent runner with a slight frame. I think he's 6'2", 6'3", 210 pounds, something like that. Really not a whole lot of weight on him at all, especially for for an NFL quarterback here. But that comes with a fair amount of injuries, injury concerns here. With that in mind, you might expect Lamar to maybe get an extension done as soon as possible, you know, thinking, hey, yeah, you don't want to get a, a major injury, risk it, maybe uh, derailing your career or whatnot. But curiously, kick the can down the road, uh, completely stopping negotiations when the season starts because, like I alluded to before, he reps himself, which... I don't. I'm actually. I'm not even sure he reps himself. He might be one of those those players that has his mom rep him, which even more of a red flag. Just tells me your mom still cleans up your room and you're not a real adult yet. But that also might just be me, uh, me me projecting on on him a little bit. I might might be getting a little bit out of pocket there here on that one. That's it, it's it's wild to have. It, it, I, I'm not I'm not a guy to cape for aid, agents, but. If you're you're letting your mom do the negotiating, maybe you should hire an agent. Just a just a thought. But anyways, I'm not a guy. Like I said, not gonna not not gonna cape for agents. But I can generally acknowledge that there are some things that you just need a professional negotiator for. I mean, just plain and simple. Contract negotiations are brutal, especially in an NFL context. Ah, even even separate from the number side of the negotiation. There's hard truths and straight talk that gets leveled on both sides of the the aisle here that, I mean, hearing that from the, the front office's side, like saying, hey, we don't think you're, you're going to make this much, or more specifically, we don't think you're going to have this sort of production. We're, they're basically saying, we don't think you're good enough to, to warrant this level of compensation you're asking for here. So it's hard to hear that sort of stuff incredibly hard in fact for players to hear that sort of stuff and not take it personally so there's another added uh, layer into that as well that makes this complicated with Lamar Jackson with all that said however as time goes by guys like Deshaun Watson sign massive deals fully guaranteed deals at that average annual values just keep going up I'm starting to see the method to his madness here Uh, firstly on the field, Lamar Jackson actually has an uncanny ability to move around, wiggle around uh, big contact, and largely avoid uh, the big hits that you see a lot of those slight frame guys uh, get from, from blindside hits and the like, uh, in spite of how frequent he takes off, which, I mean, he runs like 20 times a game, but finds a way to get down, not get hurt, sense when the hit's coming so, so he can go down without taking that blindside hit that you often see dum-dums like Carson Wentz do. Uh, I digress on that front. Yeah, I definitely digress on that front. 
anyways, it, it allows him to maintain a level of consistent health, which gives him the wiggle room to, to take some calculated monetary risks, if you will, with his, uh, his contract negotiation. You're seeing that play out right now. See it quite clearly in his strategy. It's, it's basically to play out most, if not all of his rookie deal, maybe even wait until Herbert gets his extension done. I think he might be eligible for an extension after either this year or after next season. Uh, maybe he even plays a year or two on the franchise tag as well. The bottom line is it looks like he's going to wait until the iron is at his absolute hottest, then finally sign a massive extension, which I assume at that point probably going to end up being a long-term deal uh, to give himself a little bit of security because by that point, I understand he is he takes less contact than the average I don't, I don't want to say running quarterback, but he is really one of the greatest quarterback runners, well, the greatest quarterback runner that the NFL has ever seen. A guy like that has naturally a shorter shelf life. If for no other reason, then bottom line, athleticism degrades over time. He's not going to be as quick and as fast as he is at age, whatever he is now, 24, 25, when he's 35 per se. I mean, not he's not quite the same situation as Cam Newton being a, a power runner, getting actually taking the most hits of anyone in the NFL for a, a five-year stretch of time there. Not like that at all, but still one of those things where he doesn't have as long of a shelf life as your your average uh, pocket passer. Maybe, I mean, he, he has that ability to maybe um, evolve more into a, a pocket passer. He already has some solid pocket passing ability now, but he's going to have to later in his career because that that athleticism is not going to be there forever. He's always going to have that speed, but the quickness is going to degrade at some point. But anyways, like I I'm, I'm, I'm really degrading here. De degrading. Um, fuck. Derailing here. My goodness. I am all over the place. Um, I get that high risk begets high rewards. I mean, you're talking to a guy with like five holdings in his stock portfolio right now, and it's mostly concentrated in like four of those holdings if i if i had to say so i mean i i get it high risks high reward no risk it no biscuit here but with the style that lamar jackson plays it's a serious roll of the dice every week that he might go into a pile or get hit awkwardly and have a catastrophic leg injury where you know it takes a a long, long time to come back. Like maybe, maybe like the one you saw with, with uh, Dak Prescott, you saw him come back and immediately he was never known for being the, uh, the athletic guy in the first place, but he, he was known for running around and it took him a, a while to really get comfortable on that ankle again. I, if something like that happens to Lamar Jackson, he's on the franchise tag. Ho, 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 buddy. That calculated risk just cost you probably a couple hundred million dollars. So I hope this works out for uh, Lamar Jackson, but I really hope he realizes just how massive of a risk he's taking by waiting as long as he has without even making a concerted effort to sit down at the uh, negotiating table. But only time will tell if he ends up on the right side of that. Honestly, you know, I'm, I'm not one to, to root for the boss and all of this. So I'm always, always rooting for the player to make as much money as he possibly can. So hopefully that happens. I've just got a bad feeling that this might end up going in the, uh, opposite direction, if you will. And, uh, well, goddamn, we are already on the, the, 
the last uh, story of the day here. We're ending it off on a, on a feel-good story. I have absolutely burned through this podcast today. My Lord. Uh, anyways, uh, feel-good story here to end it off. Malcolm Jenkins calling it a career after 13 season. Long-time Eagle, long-time Saints safety. Uh, all-time locker room guy. Uh, just one of the more respected players in the entire league. Calling it a career Said that twice already, really just stumbling over my words at this point. But what else is new, like I've said at least four times in this podcast? Uh, anyways, when Jenkins really first came in the league, he played corner at first with the Saints, I remember fairly vividly, and it was it was debatable as to whether he was even gonna gonna like play. Like there was there was real talk about I mean, really not real talk because he kind of faded into the background for a while, but if he hadn't a move to safety, who knows what the story of Malcolm Jenkins' NFL career was. I mean, maybe he only, maybe he doesn't play for very long. Maybe he plays for a long time, but he plays for like five to seven teams. I mean, who, who knows what happens if he doesn't move to safety. But bottom line was, it was clear he needed to adapt if he was going to stick around the league for the long haul there. So, switches to safety and has a unique opportunity to learn behind one of the greatest to ever do it. On the football field, on the football field, can't can't stress enough, on the football field, Darren Sharper, one of the greatest safeties of all time, and uh, he goes on to be one of the, the more respected players in the entire league, learning a lot behind Derek Sharper, and Darren Sharper, and on the field again. Cannot stress enough. He learned a lot from Darren Sharper on the field, and you can tell just based on how uh, Malcolm Jenkins comports himself He's uh, definitely didn't take any cues from Darren Sharper off the field, but I'm going to digress on that front. He was a guy who could come into a locker room and immediately take control. A guy that, even if he doesn't know anyone in the locker room when he gets there, he's almost certain within the first week to be one of the mainstays of leadership, one of the cornerstones of leadership in the locker room almost immediately, a special type of personality that... I feel like can connect to just about everyone in the locker room. I mean, black, white, poor background, um, rich background, anything you can think of. I feel like Malcolm Jenkins can relate to someone there, and he's he's done that a lot. You, you, you've seen it play out in the results for teams on the field. I mean, the moment he entered the locker room for the Eagles, they became a completely different group almost overnight. I mean, they seem to have better chemistry, better uh, they liked each other, and most importantly of all, they played better on the field when Jenkins got there. I mean, I want to say, I mean, obviously they had my boy Hale State Fletcher Cox. I know he he's a, he was a little bit salty about how they did he did his boy Sylvester Croom, so he doesn't say he graduated from Mississippi State in his uh, Sunday night or Monday night intros anymore. But we still love you, buddy, even if you don't necessarily love us as much anymore. I I understand. We still love you for all your contributions. That being said, outside of him, not great discipline on the defense. Malcolm Malcolm Jenkins comes in, injects leadership. That was also around the time I believe they brought in uh, Chris Long for a stint. One of those guys that's bounced around a little bit towards the end of his career, but he basically bounced around on the uh, on on the the merits of him being an absolute 
awesome locker room guy that can produce on the field as well. So, I mean, you had the, the combo of those guys in there translated into a, a defensive that, frankly, won them a Super Bowl in 2018 with Nick Foles out there. I mean, I know Big Dick Nick got the statue and all, but that defense was one of the best units in the entire league, really the reason that they ended up winning in the end. So I would say Jenkins' unique experience learning behind Sharper and, you know, another Saints standout safety, a guy that I would like to talk about a little bit more off the field than Darren Sharper, Roman Harper, another monster on the field, uh, manifested itself on the football field in Jenkins' ability to dissect what an offense was doing in my mind. I feel like I've heard a lot of times the the safety is the one that, that sets the coverage. The linebacker is the one that calls out the defense. So Jenkins looks at what the uh, the defense the offense is lined up in, looks at the receivers, what the uh, the offense's tendencies are. I'm sure he's been watching film all all week, and he's responsible for being the brain of the secondary to basically, like we were talking about with Wagner earlier, let everyone else just play their game. So Having a guy back there, he never really got the credit he deserved. Only ended up going to one or two Pro Bowls, I believe. Um, but really ended his career. He, his athleticism was deteriorating, but every unit he was a part of was better with him there because of the breadth of knowledge a guy like that brings to a meeting room. And fittingly, ended his career right back where it started, uh, making valuable contributions to, I mean, one of the best, if not the best, defenses in the entire league last year. I mean, just a highlight. You, you, I feel like you want to end your career on a dominant note if you can. I feel like a lot of a lot of players, a lot of the great players specifically, end up aging out of the league. And you know, father father time. I mean, it's it's undebatable that father time caught up with Jenkins here, but it wasn't it wasn't like a sad ending like you saw with like Brett Favre or someone like that, where there was just a shell of their former self. I mean, Jenkins, a diminished player from what he once was, but on one of the best units in the league, ending your career on a dominant note has to feel good. Couldn't think of a better way to call it a career and couldn't find better vibes to end the show on. So that's all for this episode. If you enjoyed, subscribe, leave a five-star rating so we can grow this bad boy a little bit. If you didn't, just keep removing my guy and or girl, but like, you know, tell people it was good anyways, you know? I, I want to grow this. I want to I see if it, how how far we can take this podcast a little bit. May not be the the main goal here, but yeah, let's let's just see what goes on. Anyways, uh, episodes are released every Wednesday once a week through the off season. We'll be back to twice a week uploads when football is back in swing this fall. And I got a little bit of well, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. Extra time is just an absolute fallacy in the fall when the football is in full swing. But goddamn, do I love to work hard. Anyways. Follow me on all my socials at Kalo Verzak. Link will be in the description so you don't have to spell my fucked up Eastern Bloc name. Czech Republic to be exact. Bohemia if you want to be even more exact there. Uh, if you want to contact the show, shoot me an email at unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. That's unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. Just put business or show in all caps to start the subject line so you can be categorized accordingly. Uh, that's about all. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in to Unqualified Analysis this week. And as always, I've got no idea what I'm talking about, but I am hot in gambling, ladies and gentlemen. Good gambling, everybody. <laughs>